Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. My name is Lauren Walker, and I'm the director for the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence at CEI. On today's episode, I'll lead us in a discussion about New York City's new overdose prevention centers. The number of drug overdose deaths in the United States more than quadrupled between 2000 and 2019, and opioid overdose was declared a national public health emergency in 2017. Nationally, overdose deaths were the highest on record in 2020, with over 91,000 drug-involved overdose deaths and over 68,000 opioid-involved overdose deaths reported. New York State is no exception to the trend. Drug-involved overdose deaths increased by 37% between 2019 and 2020, and overdose deaths involving any opioid increased by 44% during the same period, for an average of nearly 12 deaths every day. In response to the growing crisis, New York State convened a heroin and opioid task force in May 2016, and on November 30th, 2021, New York became the first U.S. city to open officially authorized overdose prevention centers. Overdose prevention centers are an evidence-based approach to preventing overdose deaths adopted by countries around the world. However, they remain unsanctioned in the United States. They offer supervised hygienic spaces for people who use drugs to do so safely and provide a connection to health-promoting services, such as harm reduction, medical care, mental health therapy, drug treatment, and social supports. In addition, overdose prevention centers improve individual and community health, increase public safety, and reduce the social consequences of drug use. Opponents view the centers as magnets for drug use. However, the New York State Department of Health announced that in their first three months of operation, the centers were used more than 9,500 times, and staff on site averted more than 150 overdoses to prevent injury and death. On today's episode, we'll talk about this momentous achievement and what it means for public health in New York State. It is my absolute honor to introduce our two guests, Kaylin C. and Clara Cardell. Clara was born and raised in Washington Heights in New York City. She first learned about harm reduction in 2005 after completing a residential treatment program following 18 years of crack cocaine use. Clara visited the Washington Heights Corner Project here in New York on the recommendation of her peers in the neighborhood and quickly became a participant. In 2012, Clara began using heroin and credits the Washington Heights Corner Project for keeping her safe and healthy throughout her use. Clara is a fierce advocate for the rights of people who use drugs and has been to Albany and Washington, D.C. many times to fight for policy change and meaningful action to redress the harms caused by the war on drug users. She has been an invaluable member of the Washington Heights Corner Project staff team for nearly nine years, serving as a peer before being promoted to outreach specialist and finally, senior harm reduction associate. Harm reduction is Clara's passion, and today she is proud to say she works in and uses the first overdose prevention center in the U.S. Thanks so much for joining us today, Clara. How's your day going? My day is going fine. Fabulous. I'm also joined today by Kaylin C., the proud senior director of programs for both the Washington Heights Corner Project and the New York Harm Reduction Educators that serve Washington Heights, East Harlem, and the Bronx. Before moving to New York in 2016, Kaylin worked in Vancouver, Canada, developing and operating innovative, award-winning drug user-focused programs, including the Drug Users Resource Center, 
or DURC, which employed 150 active substance users and saw 1,000 member visits each day. Beyond DURG, Kalen developed Canada's first street-entrenched managed alcohol program and an alcohol exchange for illicit alcohol consumers, the first of its kind in the world. Her many years working to improve the lives of people who use drugs has afforded Kalen the opportunity to garner experience across multiple sectors, including housing, shelter for active substance users, community-based detox and treatment, social enterprise, Indigenous-directed care and cultural programming, drug policy reform, advocacy, and safe consumption. Welcome to the show, Kaylin. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Really happy to be here. This is exciting. Let's dive right in and start with each of you telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you're involved with the overdose prevention centers. Kaylin, can you tell us a little bit about the history or evolution of the Washington Heights Corner Project and the New York Harm Reduction Educators? I can. I could probably take up the entire podcast with that, but I'll try to give you the the cliff notes on that. The New York Harm Reduction Educators is a 35-year-old organization. Not many people know that. It sprung out of the roots of the Young Lords and Black Panthers movement of the 70s and was really, Nairi really started out of the takeover of Lincoln Hospital, which was, of course, all about improved equity and access to healthcare for Black and Brown communities. And even today, We have three folks on our staff today who were present at the Lincoln Hospital takeover, and they still work here today in our holistic program. So Nairi has been walking the walk and talking the talk of harm reduction since the 70s. The Washington Heights Corner Project has a very different history, but, but just as fascinating. The Washington Heights Corner Project was founded by an amazing woman named Jamie Favaro, who was working in a social service agency in the George Washington bus terminal in Washington Heights. And, you know, she was sitting in her office looking out the window at all of the people she could not serve because they were active drug users and they weren't allowed in the door. And, you know, something snapped (laughs) in Jamie's mind in a really beautiful way that we still are very grateful for to this day. And she said, that's it. Like we we need a, a syringe syringe service program and harm reduction program in Washington Heights. And she fought really hard to get one. And she started on a corner with a backpack full of clean supplies, handing them out in Washington Heights. And that's why it's called the Washington Heights Corner Project. So that was 2005 that she started the advocacy work. And in 2007, Washington Heights Corner Project received its first uh, syringe service waiver from the New York State Department of Health. Here we are all of these years later. And I'll just do a big sort of like a jump cut uh, to a little bit more recent history. In 2015, the Washington Heights Corner Project really started running an unsanctioned supervised consumption program, utilizing the New York State guidelines for the operation of a harm reduction bathroom in a syringe service program. And we push those guidelines to their absolute limit because harm reduction finds a way. So I, I, I'll go so as to far. We exploited those guidelines to ensure that we could run a supervised consumption program and not get the overall program shut down. So for six, six-ish years, six plus years, the Washington Heights Corner Project and the little light, a little bit later, the New York Harm Reduction Educators has, had been running unsanctioned programs. That was really the foundation that allowed us to be the provider that was ready to open the sanctioned sites. We had been doing the work for six years. We knew what worked. We knew what didn't. Our staff were trained. Our response was tight. 
culturally as an organization, we knew what it meant, sort of the gravity, the intimacy, the vulnerability of sitting in witness to people consuming drugs. So it wasn't a big ask for our staff because they were already sort of in the habit of doing it. And then in November of this year, on November 30th, very special day for all of us, we, we launched the first two overdose prevention sites in the United States, making history, our, our little organizations. <laughs> I cannot congratulate you enough for that and starting especially from such humble beginnings. It's, it's really impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Clara, how were you first introduced to Nairi or Washington Heights Corner Project? And what has, what's your experience been like? After almost 20 years of using or smoking crack, I stopped. I, I decided to stop for a little bit. So I went to a residential program and was sober. I was not using for six years, but I already knew of Washington Heights Corner Project because I live in the neighborhood five, six blocks away. I knew Jamie, I knew all the participants because I used to, I used to use with them. So I used to stop by, uh, drink some coffee, um, say hi. And I, I noticed, you know, people were using the, the, the restroom, but they would go secretly to use the restroom, but to do what they had to do because they knew they knew that if they were there for too long or something had happened to them, somebody would knock on the door or somebody else would have to use the bathroom and they would be safe anyway. After six years, I decided that I wanted to use heroin out of out of the blue. <laughs> so um, I just started injecting. I never decided to sniff. I, so I really, I was, I was embarrassed. I don't know, you know, the stigma and, and the stuff I, I was, everybody was congratulating me because I had been clean that as they say, I had been sober for six years and, and now I am injecting heroin. Oh my God. So the first thing I thought about was Washington Heights corner project there. I would be safe. And nobody would know. When I walk in Corner Project, I see everybody that I know. <laughs> okay, so um, I I really, my whole life, like I said, most, most of my life, I had been like an isolator, alone all the time. Um, so expressing myself, jobs, like when I, when I came out the program, the residential program, I got a job in maintenance. So I really didn't have a boss either. I, it was myself. So I really had nobody to talk to. And all those other years that I was smoking, I wasn't really a social, you know, I wouldn't socialize. I would, I would just be by myself all the time. So when they, the directors and, and the staff in Corner Project, saw that I knew everybody, that I was from the neighborhood. They were like, Clara, like, you should be a peer, like apply for it. And I was like, no, I can't even express myself. I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah, I work in Corner Project um, or a harm reduction agency. And, uh, and I would stay stuck right there. Like, I wouldn't know what else to say. But at that, at, at that moment, I had a supervisor and, and, and the, a coworker that really pushed me and, and, and 
like believed in me more than I believed in myself. They're like, Clara, you got this. And, and they would put me on the spot, like Clara, you do it. And they did it so many times that I, I got it. You know, I, I still, I still struggle with, with expressing myself, but, but I got it, (laughs) you know? So I said, I applied and I was up here for about a year, almost a year. And then they gave me the opportunity to be staff part-time for about almost another year. And, and then I was full-time staff, but still using the services, still using the services, HRA, wound care, like whatever services they provided at the time, the secret bathroom after 2015, etc. And yeah, right now I work at the OPC at the overdose prevention center. And, and, and it's, it's a dream come true because I, I went to all those bus long bus trips to Washington and to Albany to, you know, fight for this, you know, life-saving center that we have today. Clara, can I tell Lauren Yes. How extreme it was? Yes. Okay. I just had to get her permission. Yes. First off, when Clara says she was given the opportunity to, she was promoted because very quickly, because she was so goddamn good at her job for one, but she didn't speak. When she first came to Washington Heights Corner Project, she, I didn't know Clara then. This predates me by a couple of years, but believe me, I've heard the stories. She, people thought she couldn't speak. She was entirely quiet and so reserved and so isolated. And it took, it took a lot of, to pull Clara out of herself and really to convince Clara of what we knew that she could do. And now we can't shut her up. Like, it's just, it's beautiful. Like now, now she's, you know, she's our senior harm reduction associate and the most senior staff working in our Washington Heights program and she's just in in an incredibly special person and kudos to Clara. I was I'm so impressed by just the the cyclical nature of both of these stories that Clara you started somewhere unable to ask for help or unwilling to ask for help and this beautiful community stood behind you and held your hand through it and now you can be part of that community that stands behind someone else and advocates and here you are on this podcast talking to me about it now. It's, it's just a lovely story of growing up. <laughs> it is. Thank you. <laughs> it makes me think, Kaylin, too, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the evolution of the program from being unauthorized to authorized and what that process was like. So who, if anyone, who else was involved in the advocacy in addition to Clara and was any legal action taken? How were you selected? What was the process of getting incorporated? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I want to recognize that even though we were fortunate enough to be able to open our two programs on November 30th, that there are, we weren't the only underground or unsanctioned program operating. You know, the crisis is so devastating and the loss of life is so huge. And the community knows that overdose death is preventable if someone is there. 
that many programs, not only in New York City, but across the country are finding a way to support people and keep, keep them safe. I also want to acknowledge the, the huge, brave and dedicated community of activists who have been fighting for this for decades, decades and decades. And they are way too many to list here. <laughs> but just know that every time we open the OPCs, we just send up a debt of gratitude to, to all of them. I think this is the easiest way to explain it. On May 4th, 2018, <laughs> you're probably wondering why I'm going. You're like, oh God, this is going to be a long story. <laughs> um, Mayor, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio released an op-ed announcing his support for the overdose prevention site pilots at four harm reduction agencies. And the article, it was in the New York Times, the article named the four agencies. Washington Heights Corner Project was one, Vocal New York was another, Housing Works and St. Anne's Quarter of Harm Reduction. You would have thought that in the fight for safe consumption, that that would have been an amazingly positive day. The mayor finally coming out, announcing his support. Problem was, he didn't warn any of the programs that this article was coming out. We were completely blindsided. And all four programs were threatened with eviction by their landlords. And the Washington Heights Corner Project was evicted from our space. The other sort of unintended consequence of that article was that it telegraphed, it advertised our intended use to every prospective landlord in Washington Heights. And the Washington Heights Corner Project went on to be homeless in Washington Heights at the height of fentanyl gripping the drug supply for two and a half years. We looked at, I think, 67 properties and there wasn't a landlord that would, would entertain housing us. We were in a really tough position. We had an 8,000 square foot drop-in center where we had successfully run this very active overdose prevention program and offered all of the other services Clara was mentioning. So we were containing our piece of the epidemic in our drop-in. Then we were evicted and it spilled out all over Washington Heights in a very visible way. And suddenly we were on street corners trying to do services out of these RVs with, and the community was furious because to them it seemed it had just sort of exploded all over the neighborhood, all of this public drug use, all of this overdose occurrence, people in medical crises all over the place. And to them, it looked like we caused the problem because now we were visible on the street corner, as opposed to being a symptom of how effective a service provider we were when we actually had a building. And it was a really heartbreaking and difficult couple of years. We lost a lot of people to overdose fatality, but we had a decision to make. Previous to being evicted, Washington Heights Corner Project and Nairi and, and many of the other harm reduction programs kind of went under the radar. Just kind of, if you don't know you're, we're here, you don't know we're here and it's good you don't know we're here. We're just over here doing our thing, right? But that wasn't working anymore because it allowed the community to kind of fill in their blanks about what, who they thought we were and what they thought we were doing. And they never do that in a positive way. <laughs> they, they tend to fill in the blanks, not in your favor. So we had to completely change our community engagement strategy. We had to be loud and proud. And we had to reframe the issue for what felt like every single resident of Washington Heights. We had to bring the angry mom whose kids picked up used syringes on their way to school. We had to bring the people who lived in buildings where, where folks were using and overdosing on their roofs and in their mm -hmm. stairwells. 
we had to talk to the police. We had to talk to businesses, the MTA, you name it, and reframe the issue. You think you want us out in the neighborhood, but actually you want to double down on this program. You want to get us the biggest building you can. And as a part of that, you want to fight for overdose prevention centers, because if you don't want this in your community, this is a piece of the solution. It's not the whole solution, but it's a really important piece. Why am I telling you all of this? Because when we finally opened on November 30th of this year, particularly in Washington Heights, the community was like, what is all the fuss about? Haven't they been doing this for years? Like, why is there even media attention? Which is exactly where we wanted the community to be, right? And to a certain extent, it was the same in Harlem. We also use that time because it was such an, it provided such an opportunity for comparison. This is how effective we were when we were inside. And this is how we were able to help uh, control the overdose rates. Look what happens when we don't have a home. So we also use that as an advocacy tool with the New York City and New York State Department of Health. We use that as an opportunity to bring them on more committedly as, as a partner who would back us when the time was right. And wow, did they ever back us when the time was right. Um, when this moment presented itself, and I want to make very, very clear, the time that elapsed from the moment Sam, our executive director, Sam Rivera, the wonderful Sam Rivera, yes. from the time Sam and I decided we were going to take this risk to the minute we opened our doors, including hiring the staff, building two sites, <laughs> writing the policies and procedures, training everybody, freaking out. All of that was just over three weeks. It was madness. I would, But I do want to say... This New York City Department of Health did everything they could to back us, support us, open doors where they could, led really beautifully and courageously by Dr. Chinazo Cunningham. Yes. And I mean, our long list of really committed partners at the New York City Department of Health, as did the New York State Department of Health, led by Alan Clear, Charlton Clay, and Maxine Phillips at the New York State Department of Health, and the mayor's office. So as he was leaving office, Mayor Bill de Blasio decided that this was something that he could throw his mayoral power behind, and he put the full weight of the city's approval process behind our bid to open the overdose prevention sites. So it was a combination of those three allies and our readiness as an organization that allowed us to go forward. I do want to say very clearly, and this is, this is, this is what's special about our situation, and I hope sort of emboldens other jurisdictions to maybe make moves they feel a little bit afraid to make. We do not have federal permission to operate these sites. Mm -hmm. We do not have New York State permission to operate these sites. We have a letter from a mayor who is no longer in power. And we have not been interfered with. The rollout has been incredibly positive. The early outcomes from both sites have just blown the expectations for what these sites could do out of the water. And we, we fully expect that in the full course of time that the New York state will come on as a supporter and that the feds will follow suit shortly after that. Biden enacted the crack house statute many years ago. He is now the president. There is a beautiful full circle leadership moment here to repeal the crack house statute if he chooses to take it. And I don't know if anybody listening knows President Biden, but if you do, now is the time to give him a quick call 
and just say, this moment is yours if you want it. It's an incredible leadership moment for the federal administration to really show that they are listening, that they see this works, and that they are willing to admit that mistakes can be undone. And uh, yeah, so just give them a quick call. Thank you. Clara, when I introduced you, I, I called you, and I hope it's okay, a fierce advocate. And I'm wondering on the other end, what it was like for you to travel to Albany, to DC, telling your story and, and really putting the word out there. What, what was that experience like? The first time that I went to Albany, I was, like I said, I had always been under a rock. I was like, wow, these important people. So I, was, I wasn't that confident. You know, so I stayed, I stayed back a little, but um, second, third, fourth time I was chanting. We were fighting for overdose prevention, fatal overdose prevention, because we knew it worked like it's worked all over. One of those times I got arrested. I guess we, we did all we could. And yeah, I'd get up at, at, 4.30 to be at six downtown waiting for the bus. And, and it was fun. It was exciting to, to be a part of something that we didn't know if it was going to work or not. Cause I, I, I saw it towards the end. I was like, I'm continuing to do this because when people continue and, and to do something that, that they really know that that works it, it happens. I didn't continue to go more because I was working more. Otherwise, I would have still, I would have still been going today. I mean, right before we opened, I would have still been going. And I did go to City Hall the last time we went and we, we were there fighting for our OPC. You must be so proud to see all of that hard work kind of solidified into something that you know that you had, a, you played a part in. Yeah. So it sounds like you found out and then opened these two centers pretty quickly. I won't make you go through and re-experience that trauma, but I'm wondering <laughs> if you can tell our listeners what each of the OPCs offer, what services are available, who can access them, where are they located, and things like that. We have a more traditional medical model in East Harlem and a consumer and peer-led model in Washington Heights. That's very deliberate. When we saw an opportunity to open a site, we decided to be the extra <laughs> and open two on the same day because we saw an opportunity to stand up two different models and, and evaluate them against each other. We can talk about that in a second. But both teams are trained to respond at the same level of a registered nurse. So On Point NYC believes very strongly in giving technical skills to very capable people, regardless of whether they use drugs or not. Because we don't believe that just because you use drugs, your, your brain doesn't work and you have nothing to offer society. In fact, we think that you're probably a pretty interested and gifted person who deserves an opportunity to, to offer your skills to the world. And I'll just say as loudly and as clearly as I can to everyone listening that this is an open invitation uh, to come and see the sites. We strongly believe they're an educational tool and part of our responsibility is to offer this educational opportunity to anyone who, who wants it or needs it. 
People fear what they don't know and what they don't understand. And, and seeing these sites operate is, is the best way to demystify what they, what they do and how they function. So our overdose prevention centers, otherwise called safe consumption sites or drug consumption rooms, or there's a million names, are located in East Harlem. One is on 126th Street between Lex and Park. And the other is in Washington Heights on 180th Street between Amsterdam and Autobahn Avenue. They offer a safe place to consume any drug illicitly or legally acquired. And you can, can, whoever comes to the site with with previously acquired substances, we don't provide substances, just want to clear that up. (laughs) They can consume their drugs of choice any way that they want to. So they're polymodality sites. They're not safe injection sites. That's an important distinction. You can inject, smoke, snort, sniff, swallow, or booty bump, (laughs) should you choose, your drugs of choice. The most common drugs used at our sites are heroin and fentanyl, crack and cocaine, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, both prescription and pill press benzodiazepines, K2, cannabis, and then an assortment of uh, prescription medications. A visit to our site is by dose as determined by the participant, and that's another unique feature of our sites. What that means is that we've broadened what a visit can look like to capture the entire incidence of use. So many of the consumption sites in other parts of the world allow a visit per singular dose. So one injection or one visit to the smoking room, whatever it may be, and then you've got to sign up again. We allow a person to come in, and as long as they're prescriptive, meaning they tell us when they come, what they're going to do, and about how many injections they think that is, or if they need to go to the smoking room and back to the booth, they can do that. There's no time limits in our site, so it allows folks to really relax and take their time Not having a time limit is one of the biggest safety mechanisms that we can give back to people, you know, taking out the necessity to rush or the need to rush. Our sites also allow split dosing. It's another uh, unique feature of our sites that acknowledges that many of the folks that are using our sites also live in poverty and often have to go in together to pool together enough money to buy a dose of their drugs of choice. So you can come in and split a dose in our site. And there's a whole protocol around that. Basically, the number one function of the overdose prevention sites is safety and stability. It's a bit of a controversial statement to say the number one goal of the sites is not sobriety. It's safety and stabilization and the prevention, preventing the loss of life, an unnecessary loss of life. And and they're also about giving dignity back to a population that doesn't often have a very dignified experience of life and of being a member of this society. So they're very community feeling spaces. They're very low barrier spaces. Mm-hmm. We have music playing. To us, it's their, their sacred spaces. We call them the church mm-hmm. because it's sacred space. It's the demilitarized zone. It's, you know, stigma has no, no place there. It's not welcome there. You can be who you are there. Your drug use is nothing to be ashamed of. And your life and your safety is of paramount importance to us. So Clara, when you were talking earlier, you said you would kind of hang out at the Washington Heights Corner Project, have a cup of coffee, you know, chill with your friends. What other services are available at the overdose prevention sites? If I 
I'm a user and I come in, is, is there a bathroom? Could I have a cup of coffee? Are there other harm reduction services or materials that are available to me? We have case managers that can help you with HRA, public assistance. We have case managers that can help you with linkage to care. We, we have a drop-in center where you can sit, you can watch TV, eat food. We have lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have many, we offer many services that right now won't come to mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll save Clara on this one because yeah. she's, been, she's been in the OPC all morning. But we're expanding to 24 hours at both sites. And we believe there are, there are other ways of doing this but we believe in, in co-location. So our OPCs are co-located with all of our other services that Clara was just starting to tell you about. So when we discharge someone from the OPC or if we have to transfer care, we don't have to put someone on the street. We transfer them into the very capable hands of our drop-in crew or to our case manager or anyone, really, our harm reduction specialists. And we've tried really hard to build a one-stop shop model at both in both of our buildings because we really acknowledge that things kind of fall apart for our participants when we refer them out. We do so, we try so hard to build people up when, when they're with us. And then, you know, we refer them into these other quote unquote systems that just don't handle them or receive them in the way that we would hope. So we try to offer all of our own clinical care on site. We have a drug user health hub at our Harlem location, and we're expanding to have a satellite clinic in Washington Heights, do our own buprenorphine prescribing and inductions supported by cannabis and uh, CBD, acknowledging that uh, the sober reality for folks on buprenorphine is sometimes really challenging. Um, so trying to be to take care of that a little bit. Um, we're in the process of building our harm reduction mental health unit, and this is something we're really excited about. We've just hired four of the most badass LMSWs who really believe in harm reduction and believe, just like we do, that just because you're under the influence of, of drugs does not mean you cannot meaningfully participate in psychotherapy and other therapeutic interventions. We believe, in fact, there's a really special opportunity there when you allow people to engage in mental health care while under the influence of their substances of choice. And so they're called the Harm Reduction Mental Health Unit and they're embedded in our drop-in center. They also do sessions booth side in the OPC while people are using full counseling sessions. We're, we're partnering with Cardea to offer psychedelic mental health care, including ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, et cetera, all offered for free. To our participants, normally that is mucho bucks, <laughs> major, major money. And Cardea is very generously offering these services for free to some of our participants. 24-hour respite monitored by our staff for people who use drugs. No one who uses drugs is welcome in the shelter system. No one who uses drugs is welcome by any housing provider. Our respite program is, is going to be the band-aid to that. And I use the word band-aid very deliberately. It's not enough. You know, our long-term goals at On Point is to get into housing and really great, dignified, supportive housing for people who use drugs with overdose prevention services on site. Can I say something that, that I've noticed 
after the OPC has opened, many, many, many of our participants are, are young, are younger than, than Nairi's participants. And I have noticed maybe 10% of our participants, they call their wives, their moms. I don't know who they call, but they, they're calling somebody and telling them, I am in the overdose prevention center. Don't worry. And you can't see it, but Kaylin can. I can. My, like, I got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. It's when, when, like, when I see that, it reminds me of somebody that did pass away when we were closed in, in, in the McDonald's bathroom. Mm. He used to call his mom. Ugh. And and tell her, mom, I'm okay. I'm here in Washington Heights Corner Project. But now I see so many people doing it and, and it makes me happy. <laughs> I, I kind of try to eavesdrop. <laughs> um, not on purpose. I don't, I'm not that nosy, but um, I just, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled that, that they're calling their, their loved ones to tell them that they're okay because they're in the OPC. And their loved ones are listening and agree yes. that, you know, my son is yes. there today, so I can, I can stop worrying for a couple hours. Yeah. And, and to Clara's point, we're not 24 hours yet. So we have lost folks and it's, and it is when we're closed. And that's just like absolutely heart-wrenching. The last three fatalities in Washington Heights were two in, two in two different train stations when we were closed and one in a stairwell of a building when we were closed. And they normally, if we'd been open, they would have used, been using the OPC during the day. And then our group educational volunteer program, which is our kind of employment entry point for participants, which, hello, <laughs> here's the evidence of how well that program works. There was a really complicated, pretty scary overdose in our East Harlem site where we kept losing the heart rate and we had to use the AED. But the resolution, fine, you know, at the end, when it was all said and done, the resolution was okay. The gentleman woke up and we, because we're co-located, we transferred him to our drop-in center and they kept him. The next morning he showed up with a resume and he said, I want a job. And we said, okay, you can apply for a job. Absolutely. And we told him that he needed a cover letter, you know, just sort of we're testing him a little bit. Like how serious is he? Next day, he came back with a cover letter, scheduled an interview, and he's actually across the hall right now in our meeting room onboarding. We hired him. He's going to join the team. He's going to work here. And it, he, uh, imagine that outcome. <laughs> That's the outcome of, a, of an overdose is, is finding meaningful full-time employment for the first time in a long time. So listening, I mean, my gosh, to that laundry list of all of the amazing services that you provide, I there's no doubt in my mind that this has had an unbelievable impact on the community. Clara, I'm wondering if you're comfortable sharing with us what, what your personal impact has been with the yeah. onset of these centers and working in them, using in them. What is that like? Two, two. I have two to tell you. One, manage managing my drug use. I work, I, I, I love what I do. And so I, I use early in the morning and I use, and I use before I leave. 
and that's it. And I take my little bit of methadone in the morning so I'm not in withdrawal at any moment. And other impact. you got to explain what that is. The listeners might not know. What? What managing your use is. Managing my use. <laughs> I used to use, I used to use maybe from six to 10 bags of heroin a day. I use two today. So that is managing your use. That is something that we educate people on. That is one of our educations to manage your use. So we give people examples and, and we, we educate people on, on managing that. Those are one of the, ex- the examples. Another, another way it has impacted me, um, being able to help somebody and look at them in the eye. And just because I have been in their shoes and maybe I, I, I still am and just know what, what they probably need. And I can ask them because now I have this rapport with them. I'm helping them. I'm helping them guide, guiding them to find a vein, um, maybe giving them some, some hope that they're not. Somebody told me yesterday, like, like sometimes I wouldn't, I like, I don't feel like living. Like I, see myself, people are looking down on me. And I said, but what do you mean you don't feel like living? He says, yeah, I, I, I thought about, you know, like, but I just think about it. I, I, I've never had a plan because that's that was my next question. Like, do you have a plan? Have you had a plan of ending your life? Or, but he said, no, but he really felt like he was nothing. I said, you don't know tomorrow people might look up at you look up to you because I felt that way. I felt that way. I would just, I was under a rock. I didn't want anybody to see me or hear me or talk to anybody. And now like I, I, I look for people because I was, I was an outreach worker. So I used to go into tunnels, parks. I was, I would look for people to tell them about our services and to bring them to the agency to help them. And now I don't have to knock on the door or ask anybody on the other side of the door if they're okay. I can help them personally. I have this rapport. So I know if they have um, an abscess and I can take them to escort them across the street to a, uh, there's a van that it's, it's there and, and they, they help us with abscesses and they give antibiotics to people that have abscesses and I can escort them for a second. It's right across the street. I can talk to them, supportive counseling. I can tell them my story, which is really sad, which is long and sad about kids I've lost about. And I, they relate, some people relate so much to me and I relate to them. And it's something that, that I wake up every morning, just like, what, what's, what's like, what's going to happen today? Like, who am I going to help today? Who, like, who am I going to meet today? And, and it's, 
it's impacted me, like I said, in both ways, in my use and in my job. It's like, I can't even explain. Yeah. Those are some lucky people that you get to interact with then. If, if they're lucky enough to get Clara, my gosh, <laughs> they're in good hands. It's very true. Some of these overdoses are very complex and some of what people go through sitting in the booth because there's big mirrors in the booth. And it's sometimes hard to look at yourself when you don't love yourself or you, you don't feel good about who you are. You've got shame and stigma. And yes, a big, a big part of the job for the team working in the overdose prevention centers to keep people alive and keep them safe. But the other part is helping people to learn to love themselves again. And uh, yeah, so their bodies are, are in our hands, but their hearts sometimes are in our hands too. And, and the team is just so skilled and so patient and so compassionate. Yeah. There is great. love in that OPC. That's the word I was looking. There is love in that OPC. Yeah, there is. It's true. A lot. I don't want to take away from that, but I'm wondering, Kaylin, I saw something a while ago that said in the first three months of operation that the centers were used over 9,000 times and staff on site averted more than 150 overdose deaths. And I'm wondering if you have an update to share with our listeners on some of the impact beyond individuals that the two centers have had on New York. Oh, you know, I do. Since November 30th, 2021, we've enrolled 1,133 active drug users to both programs. The sites have been used just under 18,000 times. The team has intervened in 283 overdoses. Of those 283 overdoses, naloxone was used only 52 times. And that's a micro dose of naloxone. That doesn't mean that the rest of the overdoses were not very serious or potentially fatal. It just speaks to the efficacy of the model. Because the team is there, the second the overdose happens, we're able to intervene with often oxygenation, oxygen therapy, agitation, and other methods, and minimize the reliance on naloxone. I'm sure you know naloxone in people who are opiate dependent triggers really acute withdrawal, makes people very, very sick. So because this is real patient-centered care, we don't want to make our participants sick. Of the 283 overdoses the teams intervened in, we've only had to call the ambulance five times. And that's something that we're incredibly proud of. Last thing I'll just say, because it's interesting, the overdose prevention centers have diverted 150,000 units of hazardous waste from the parks and public spaces of New York City because all of the drug use equipment that gets used in the overdose prevention stays in the overdose prevention center. So all of that used paraphernalia, all of those syringes do not end up in subway stations, parks, street side. It's all disposed of safely in the overdose prevention center. Last little bit of data that's compelling. East Harlem is a slightly older population and a very heavy smoking population, and they represent the majority of the enrollments. So of the 1,133, 800 are in Harlem. However, 
they represent the Harlem guys represent only 95 of the 283 overdoses. The Washington Heights program with only 330 enrollments accounts for almost 200 of the 283 overdoses. And that's because they're a much younger population and they're predominantly speedball injectors, which means they're injecting multiple times a day and opiate or depressant involved injections are more frequent for them. So they're a pretty high risk population. So just just a little bit of an interesting nod to the scalability and the adaptability of the overdose prevention center model. They don't all look the same and they should be built to reflect the population that's going to use them. And, and we've done that with both of our sites. I'm going to take the conversation one step further and just kind of pose this question to both of you. What do you think is next in the pipeline for New York State in addressing the ongoing epidemic? More overdose prevention centers. <laughs> More. Is yes. anything missing from the current centers or would you just recommend more? Safe supply. Yes. We need clean drugs. We need buying drugs in New York City is a seller's market. The buyer has no power. It's one of the reasons the overdose fatality rate is so high. Fentanyl is in everything. And anything else. We don't know what's in it. Xylazine, borax. It's incredibly dangerous. The next step is 100% safe supply. We will shout it from the rooftops (laughs) to anyone who will listen. And then the other big missing piece, there's two for me. One is universal treatment. Enough of this Medicaid covered treatment once a year for a very short period of time in a setting that feels a lot like jail makes you feel pretty bad about yourself for being there. Universal, compassionate, therapeutic treatment uh, for free, on demand, run by harm reduction, culturally competent providers like us would be great. We fully intend to get into the treatment game. And how great is it going to be when our treatment, long-term treatment, is going to be located in the same building as our consumption site? People think that doesn't make any sense. To us, it makes perfect sense. When that window opens for someone and they say, that's it, I've had it, I want to go to treatment, how great to be able to Mm -hmm. say, it's just upstairs. You don't have to go through some convoluted, horrible referral process. You can just go right upstairs. And then the last thing is housing for people who use drugs. Housing first model, it's not even controversial anymore. It's used all over the world, but not here. So why? It's sort of ideology and the stigma around We all have very deeply held beliefs around drugs and drug users and what's right for this population. Well, housing is a right, regardless of whether you use drugs or not. One, another thing, in addition to everything else that we're going to try to do in the next little while, but community-based treatment for people who use drugs. So one thing that drives me nuts is when people put kind of parameters on an intervention, right? Like a drop-in center can only look like this or a case management team can only look like this and mental health is only like this. So that applies with overdose prevention. Overdose prevention center doesn't just have to be an OPC downstairs. Paris has a great model where there's an OPC in a hospital in Paris, having them located in housing, all kinds of different models. I want to take that even a little bit further. And this is based on something that I learned about when I was working in 
Vancouver, a really great program there called CTZT, which was called the Community Transitional Care Team. And it was a wing of a hospital located in the community operated by the harm reduction provider, specifically for people who use drugs to access medical care and continue to use their drugs of choice in a hospital setting. Why is that such a common sense solution to the healthcare needs of people who use drugs? Because they leave the hospital when they're not allowed to use their drugs of choice. So eliminate that barrier. People take drugs for lots of different reasons, but kind of, I think kind of driving it is always something to do with pain management, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, or to create the feelings, feelings of euphoria, which is kind of the absence of pain. And when you are actually in pain from a health condition, your need to manage pain goes up. So why separate the person who uses drugs from their preferred method of pain management precisely when they need it the most? So what I've been talking about with your colleague, Dr. Weiss, is how this to me seems like exactly where we should be going and and starting a pilot that operated by us. And of course, I've pitched partnering with Mount Sinai to do this and really evaluating outcomes to see what happens. And I know what's going to happen, but what (laughs) happens when you actually allow folks to use their drugs of choice while accessing their longer term medical treatments? I guarantee you people will be finishing their IV courses of antibiotics and they will be staying to make sure their endocarditis is fully resolved. They will be blah, 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 X, Y, and Z much more compliant and treatment adherent patients with better outcomes down the road. Follow-up question. What, if anything, are either of you doing to advocate for those things that you see as still missing? We are everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit why we're so tired. You know, it's not like, it's not like our normal job disappeared when we, you know, our, when we open these sites. But, okay, wait, I'm going to use a really cheesy example. You know how like lots of people like Taylor Swift, but nobody ever admits it. (laughs) Everyone's like, I'm not like no one will ever publicly admit that they like Taylor Swift, but secretly it comes on the radio and everybody knows the words. That's what the overdose prevention sites have been. People from all over the country who are like, you know, I kind of couldn't say anything before, but like I'm here in Kentucky and we really kind of want one of these, but you know, that is happening. It's the Taylor Swift effect. People are coming out of the woodwork saying, all right, all right, all right. It seems like you opened it and the sky didn't fall. How can we learn about this? Can, can you come and talk to us about what we should be doing to lay the, the foundation to eventually open one of these? And because we're the only two in the country, we really do feel a bit of a responsibility to, to help with that, to help advance conversations in jurisdictions where syringe service programs are in danger of being shut down on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's a very scary world. Programs for drug users are not safe. Sam, our our ED, his schedule is packed with having conversations with people who do not support this initiative. It's it's been really important for us to not preach to the choir, so to speak, but to really invite the detractors or the opposition in to sit in dialogue with them, just to, to have these conversations and start moving some of this forward. So it's been a lot of talking, a lot of meetings. Yeah, it's 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 really exciting work, but yeah, it's been a lot. <laughs> We've had people from from a couple of states come. Yes, to, absolutely. And and see <laughs> mm-hmm. the OPCN. 
Kaylin, you mentioned earlier that you're thinking about or planning to incorporate treatment into your model. And it lends itself to my next question, which is what's your vision for the future um, and the overdose prevention centers in the city or across the state? What, what do you think that'll look like, I guess, both in an ideal world and perhaps in a real world? Yeah, I think we have sort of our short, medium, and long-term vision. Our, our short-term focus right now is getting both of our buildings fully programmed and open 24 hours. It's very rare for an overdose prevention center to be open 24 hours. So we're very lucky to be headed that way. It's going to be a lot of work to get there. And we're, we're really hopeful that by the end of the summer, certainly by the fall, both buildings will be 24-7, including the overdose prevention centers. I, I can't overstate the need for funding because... I have funding to expand the harm reduction program, the clinical program, the holistic program, the mental health program, the respite, the food. I have funding to expand that to 24 hours. We don't have funding to expand the OPC to 24 hours because of the restrictions on the money and because of the, you know, the legal landscape around the OPCs right now. So that's our short-term vision. And that includes, you know, our Harlem building is six floors. It's going to be beautiful when it's done. Mm. It's going to be a just an absolute <laughs> sanctuary for people who use drugs in East Harlem. And the same for Washington Heights. It's a little bit of a smaller building, but it'll be four floors when it's done. Beyond that is getting harm reduction at the table with OASAS in a way that we're not sort of like the tokenized step sibling, <laughs> you know, really being a player and an influence in the OASAS world and bringing harm reduction into the treat the treatment lexicon in a legitimate and respected way. I agree. That's a huge sort of interim goal and piece of work that that we're undertaking as an organization. Quick clarification for our listeners who might not know this. OASAS is the New York State Department of Health's Office for Addiction Services and Supports. Mm -hmm. So that is the division that Kaylin was referring to there. Long-term is owning property. I can't even tell you, it, it shouldn't be radical that a harm reduction program would own property and sort of have real estate capital and agency but it's, it's where these programs have to go. For so long, they were kind of funded off the corner of this desk or with a little bit of a pot of money that was left over from this. But they need to be funded in the same way that these OASAS programs are funded and they need to be supported. And then I, I call it the all bets are off approach. <laughs> so there are so many evidence-based interventions that are used in other parts of the world that you can't even mention here without being laughed out of the, <laughs> out of the room or, you know, threatened with arrest. I believe in heroin-assisted therapy. So prescribing medical-grade heroin to people who have chronic and relapsing opioid use disorder. This, it's not new. Substitution therapies for stimulant users, uh, particularly cocaine and methamphetamine users. Again, harm reduction medicine is different than addiction medicine. And uh, another piece of work we'd really love to do is getting into the med schools and, and really helping reshape curriculum. We've been doing a lot of work with Mount Sinai about this. Mount Sinai is one of the med schools who has just been absolutely open to, off, uh, to taking what we're offering that way. 
and they should be applauded. I could go on and on and on, but we, I guess the takeaway is we're going to be busy for a long time. <laughs> As we wrap up the episode, I'd like to give each of you a few minutes to tell our audience your three key takeaways from today's discussion. Clara, let's start with Ooh, you. Good luck. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> I'm just glad that, that these, the OPC brought back that, that, that joy in, in, in working in my job that, that was gone. It truly was gone when we were homeless <laughs> and working in the RVs in the, in the winter and the snow and the, and through COVID I, I'm happy. I'm happy that, that this is my first podcast and sincerely, I really didn't even know what it was. Honestly, it's embarrassing, but it's the truth. And I, I plan to, no matter where I am, no matter where life takes me or, or what, I plan to, to belong to harm reduction and keep working in harm reduction till I retire, till I can't stand no more. The smile on your face, I know our listeners cannot see it, but it makes me smile. And it makes me think too, Clara, that you're just one of all of these people who are being impacted on such a magnificent level. It is, I don't know how you couldn't smile just listening to your story. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Kaylin, three takeaways for our audience today. One would be if you're listening and you are sort of having these thoughts come up, these feelings come up around enabling. And I don't know, this seems crazy. You know, I don't know this, oh, letting people use drugs. I don't know how I feel about that. I challenge folks by saying, you know someone who could benefit from this service. I guarantee you do. They're just hiding because they're afraid of what happens to them, what will happen to their life if they're discovered to be a drug user. If you discover to be a drug user in the United States of America, you lose everything. You lose your job. You get kicked out of school. Your kids get taken away. You can't drive, go to jail. So people hide. And, and that's why the fatality rate is so high. So I would challenge people to say, why do you feel the way you do? What, what scares you about this? And has something, what's driving those feelings? And, and is there anything that can be done to shift them a little bit? to maybe open your heart a bit more, to think about this a different way, especially if we go back to the fact, and I promise you it is a fact that you know someone who could probably use this service or needs a service like this. None of us are immune from addiction of this kind. The margin is very small. And you know we as a culture do really have deeply held beliefs and ideas about drugs and drug users that really form a lot of unconscious bias in us. So I would challenge people to look at that and to sit with that a little bit. And then two, come visit us. Come and see the sights. Come and feel what it feels like in those rooms. Come and have conversations with people who benefit from these sites every single day. You will see people's sons and daughters, husbands, wives, aunts, uncles. You will see Postal delivery people, teachers, bodega workers, lawyers, doctors, you would be surprised who uses these sites. Addiction has no face. And just know that this is 
You are welcome with all of your big questions and your doubts and your concerns that, that we welcome those and we will, we will sit with you and we will talk them out and you can ask your questions. And then the third would just be, if you do support this intervention and you do support these sites and you do think that safer consumption is the way forward or a part of the way forward, shout it from the rooftops. The Safer Consumption Services Act is being voted on this week. Call your senators, call their aides, call their mothers and fathers and ask them to please vote yes on this bill. It will be transformative for our sites. It will allow city and state funding to start to trickle down to our sites. And New York leads in the U.S. And if New York votes yes on the Safer Consumption Services Act, the rest of the country will follow and lives will, lives will be saved. An overdose that happens when someone else is there is a preventable overdose. End of story. Wow. Thank you both for joining me today. It's clear now that OPCs in New York City are having a tremendous impact. Federal law, however, still describes them as unlawful. Proponents like Kaylin and Clara argue that the centers not only prevent overdose deaths, but can actually stem the problem of public drug use that often leaves a trail of used syringes on the street and in parks. On the other hand, opponents view the centers as enablers that bring people who use drugs from other neighborhoods into East Harlem and the Bronx. For people who use and inject drugs, overdose prevention centers can reduce the risk of overdose injury and death while improving access to care without increasing crime or public nuisance to the surrounding community. As Clara mentioned, they have the power to reduce mortality, connect users with other medical and social services, including treatment for substance use, and reduce public injection and improperly discarded paraphernalia throughout the community. More advocacy and education are needed to ensure these and other programs that address the drug overdose epidemic remain open and available to those in need. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.